Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. Wyndham Hotels and Resorts makes travel possible for all. Whether it's the long haulers looking for a great cup of coffee, a roomier rest for the on-a-wim road trippers, or a place to make summer memories with the whole family. No matter who you are, where you're going, or why, with 24 trusted brands to choose from like La Quinta, Days Inn, and Super 8, your Wyndham is waiting. Get the lowest price at WyndhamHotels.com. Restrictions apply. Visit website for more details. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Whether you're selling a little... Or a lot. Shopify helps you do your thing, however you cha-ching. From the launch your online shop stage, all the way to the we just hit a million orders stage. No matter what stage you're in, Shopify's there to help you grow. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash special offer, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash special offer. Welcome to the New Books Network. Welcome to New Books in History. My name is Rick Northrup, and I'm very pleased to be speaking with Professor Julian Jackson, who is Professor Emeritus of History with Queen Mary University of London. Professor Jackson needs no introduction, having published on modern French history extensively, but one may be given anyway. Professor Jackson has won several awards for A Certain Idea of France, The Life of Charles de Gaulle, including the Elizabeth Longford Prize, and he was named a Wolfson History Prize honoree in 2004 for The Fall of France, The Nazi Invasion of 1940. Professor Jackson is considered a leading authority on the history of 20th century France. His latest book is France on Trial, The Case of Marshal Pétain, published by Harvard University Press in 2023. Welcome to the program, Professor. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. I thought we'd begin with a bit of background for a listener as to who Marshall Patan was. The first chapter of your work does sum up his career nicely, but would you care to give us a summary bio of Philip Patan and how he became leader of Vichy France? Yeah, well, I think uh, what you've got to remember is that Patan was a soldier who was the greatest French military hero of the First World War. So there are lots of names we can think of in the First World War. We can think of, in America, we can think of Pershing, we can think of Foch, we can think of Haig, but in Ludendorff on the German side, Hindenburg. But for the French, the man is Pétain. Why? Because he had won, or uh, it, although it was at a terrible, terrible cost, the Battle of Verdun in 1916. And actually, that battle is back in the news a a bit because a lot of people are comparing the Ukrainian war, the kind of slogging of the Ukrainian war, and particularly around tiny, you know, tiny localities where people are just, you know, um, um, sort of throwing themselves back mut, for example. There's been a lot of comparisons in the press to that and Verdun, the sense of something that goes on for months and months and months. So Pétain... Uh, was the man in charge of the French troops at the Battle of Verdun. 
which they uh, a fort that the Germans had tried to take. The Germans failed to take it, so that already makes Pétain a hero. Then in 1917, the next year, um, he adds something to his reputation, to his legend, you could say, because there was a wave of mutinies in the French army in 1917. I mean, people had just got, soldiers just got fed up. They're not going to be thrown into endless, futile, suicidal offensives. And Pétain is put in charge, basically, of bringing these, uh, he's brought back, because he'd been sort of sidelined, back to the head of the army, and he puts an end to the mutinies by a mixture of carrot and stick. There is a certain amount of stick, that's to say there were some disciplinary measures, there were some executions, but actually, the way he did it was by showing that unlike most of the other First World War generals, he really cared about the ordinary soldier. So he improved conditions, he increased the amount of leave, uh, lots and lots of measures like that. And so he comes out of the war not only as a military hero, but as a military hero who cared about the ordinary soldier. So this creates an extraordinary myth. It's also helped by the fact that he is an extraordinarily sort of charismatic. He's amazingly good looking. Women, absolutely. Well into his 80s. Uh, He is still uh, a charmer. He has these um, extraordinary piercing blue eyes. He looks 20 years younger than his age. and so he's, he not only is a myth, but he looks a myth. You know, he looks like a hero. So in the interwar years, he's, you cannot exaggerate the extent to which he is the hero of France. And there are Pétain streets all over France. He's, the, he's the, like a god. Then, obviously, um, the war, Second World War comes. He's well retired by then. He's um, in his late 80s. Uh, he's not in any way involved in politics or military affairs and so on. But when the campaign goes disastrously badly against the Germans in 1940, and the French French prime minister, in desperation, brings in Pétain to join his government, and he's really just brought in as a sort of figurehead to improve morale and so on. But Pétain quickly takes the view, the war's lost, uh, there's no point in going on fighting, and he advocates signing an armistice with Germany. And there's a big quarrel in the government about whether or not the battle is lost, whether or not an armistice should be signed. Pétain pushes for it. And because he's got such a reputation, uh, the basically the, the prime minister at the time is forced out of power. Pétain takes over. He signs an armistice. And that armistice basically ends the war for the French. Uh, it divides France into two parts, an occupied part. So for, from 1940 to 1944, there are German troops in Paris, famous pictures that everybody knows of swastikas in the streets of Paris, of, of Hitler visiting the Eiffel Tower. There's an iconic photograph of that. So this bottom part, the, sort of, the, the southern part of France, is supposedly unoccupied. And Pétain, though the Germans obviously control a lot, they're not physically there, Pétain sets up a kind of puppet government at a small town uh, of Vichy. And that's uh, quite weird because Vichy is only known as a place where um, octogenarians go to take the waters and to have baths. You know, Vichy was not a famous central place, but it was famous only, as it were, because uh, of the Vichy water and the baths. But the government sets up in this funny little place, Vichy, and for four years, Pétain is the head of what is effectively a puppet government, because it has limited power. And he 
um, starts a policy of what comes to be called uh, collaboration with the Germans. Now, at, at first, that word collaboration, well, it just what's wrong with collaboration? Working with somebody is collaborating. That's not a bad thing. But uh, famously, Pétain, on the 23rd of October in 1940, met Hitler at a small train station in in. Uh, in France, in near the Loire River, a place called Montois. And you could say, well, why not? You know, the war's over. But the war isn't over in Europe. The war's going, the, the war is far from over. The British are fighting under Churchill. Um, the Americans are going to come in. They're not yet in. Um, this is a world going to be a world war, so it's not over. So for Pétain to actually be photographed shaking the hand of Hitler, a photograph that went around the world, was a real symbol. And for people, how could the man who had, as it were, stood up against the Germans in 1914, sorry, 17 and 16, be seen shaking Hitler's hand? And so when it's all over, when the Allies win, there's D-Day, the liberation of Paris, Pétain is put on trial by the new authorities, by the new government of the new hero, General de Gaulle, the man who'd gone to London and said, we're not going to accept defeat. France is not defeated. We're going to resist. Big word, resistance, the opposite of collaboration. And Pétain is put on trial. He's not the only person. Lots of collaborators are put on trial. But the thing about the Pétain trial is he is the head of the Vichy regime. He is the symbol, as it were. And so it is the most important uh, post-war trial in France. I would say the second most important trial in French history, if not the most important, along with the trial of uh, King Louis XVI uh, during the French Revolution. It's that important. And at the time, newspapers talked about it as the, the trial of the century. They compared it to the trial of... Um, uh, they compared it to the trial of Joan of Arc. They compared it to the trial of Louis XVI. They compared it to the trial of Charles I in England. And amusingly, this morning in the a British newspaper, a sort of left-wing newspaper, The Guardian, there was, oh, an, there was an article, uh, to my amazement, uh, about the Trump trials coming up and made a comparison and said, well, what is treason? What is treason? What is What are the duties of a, of a, um, a you know, head of state? And he brought in my book and he said, a good, and I don't personally believe that the comparison is very good, actually, in that case. But nonetheless, this was a big event. And there, the, the fact that he was being tried for treason and such a momentous figure, not just in France and Europe, is uh, it's almost, I, I dare use the word unique, in that a figure like that hasn't really been tried before. Uh, and maybe that comparison they're trying to reach for is this is now we're trying a leader of, of the free world. And, but uh, it, you'd get into questions of what is, like you said, what is treason? Um, he, he struck me as a man that was devoted to his duty above all, but perhaps he was a little bit con unconcerned with political realities. There was some question as to whether he was senile, he was approaching senility at the end of his life, but it, it didn't appear that way when they're all jammed into the Palais de Justice, if I'm, if I'm saying that right. He, he just couldn't quite hear properly that the arrangement of the courtroom was something awkward. What 
what do you what do you think of him as a person? Well, no, I think that's. I mean, just going back to the the, the important what your first point uh, about the importance, the hugeness of the event, and the uniqueness, as you said. Um, I, I mean, a comparison that you could make is with the Nuremberg trials, of course, which they uh, where the the Nazi, obviously not Hitler, because he'd committed suicide, not Goebbels, but the, the Goering however, put on trial at Nuremberg a little bit after. It's, the Nuremberg trials started a f- about a month or two after the Petain trial. But there is a difference, I think. Um, and the difference there is that in the case of Nuremberg, it's the Allies trying the Germans, trying the Nazis, and it's the outsiders, the winners. In the case of France, it is the winners. It's the people, as it were, who have um, who the resistance. But it is the French. So what gives it this... Um, you know, almost slightly traumatic quality of that trial is it's the French trying themselves. It's the French for three weeks. The trial lasted three weeks, um, washing their dirty linen in public, debating ferociously events that are not really history and yet because they've only happened a few months ago. But they're sort of publicly debating the rights and wrongs of what's happened over uh, the last four years. So, yes, um, it is it, it, it is something very poignant. Going on to what you asked about Pétain, the man, for me, why, one, reason, one reason I wrote this book was uh, partly because I thought the issues that you've raised of what is treason and what, you know, what is patriotism, which is what the book is really partly about, are kind of massively interesting, not sort of universal, big questions, which are not just about, not just about France, they're, they could be about any country. Um, but I was also attractive, because I, I wanted to write this as a book that people would read. I, I, it's not, I mean, it's, I, I hope it's a good, serious book, and it's research, but it's written, I, I actually had it as a film in my mind when I wrote it. Um, and I thought there's nothing more dramatic than a courtroom. I always love films about. I love films that take place in courts. There's because there's something. A courtroom is by by nature a drama. You know, there you've got the for and against, them, and in in a very small space, people are fighting out to find the truth. And so I thought there was something wonderfully dramatic about it, and I tried to tell that story in a almost day by day way. You know, it took three three weeks. I don't quite go day by day, but nonetheless, I get, I take the reader through the three weeks of the trial to give that sense of the unfolding drama. And one of the fascinating things about it is precisely what you just raised. What does Petain think about it all? What's going on in his head? He's 90. Um, He looks surprisingly... The the moment he enters the court is an extraordinary moment because it is, as you say, a very... it's It's a normal courtroom, relatively small, uh, quite cramped, and of course there are uh, there, there are about you know six hundred world French and journalists from all over the world there. It's absolutely, it's it's August or it's late July and August. And I don't know whether you or your listeners have been in Paris in August, but Paris in August is pretty fetid and pretty hot and pretty sweltering. And here they are all crammed in this tiny room, which people say is almost like a, a sauna, really. Uh, the heat and people are, are fainting they're, they're from the heat. Judges, are for, even, the, even judges sometimes fell asleep, not because of the boredom, but because the sheer um, physical exhaustion. So there's this moment, there's a kind of hubbub in the court on the first day, as they're all waiting to see the man who they've never seen in the flesh before. They've seen his posters, they've seen him on, you know, everywhere. He's like a god. But they know she's in the man. And he comes in and he walks quite erectly. He is 90, 
but looks younger, although he, I mean, he, you know, looks like an old man, but he doesn't look like a decrepit. Uh, he walks with, you know, extraordinary ease. He sits down in his chair. And as he sits down, there is a strange moment when uh, there's complete silence for a moment. And then people get up and to what to look, stand up. And then people are, the, the press was saying afterwards, now, why did they stand up? Did they stand up out of um, respect or deference? Because they, whatever, they still the spell of this old man somehow. Was it that? Uh, some of the more hostile journalists of Petter said, no, it wasn't that. It was just they got up so they could see properly over the heads of the people in front of them. No, there was no respect. We don't know. But then anyway, there's this man sitting there. And then on the first day, uh, and uh, as the trial is opening, he's sitting there. Um, he's, he's in a little... They put a little armchair for him with a little table in front of it on this really cramped courtroom floor. And he's nervously, they, people notice that he's got a big roll of paper in his hand. They don't, and he's nervously sort of twiddling it and, and, and he's clearly sort of obviously nervous. And then um, there comes a point when the judge, the, the leading judge says, and now the interrogation of the witness will begin. Because the way that the French trial works, the judge now interrogates, will begin it by interrogating the defendant, possibly over three or four days. A really, you know, it's a forensic interrogation. So Peter stands up and says, I want to read a declaration, which lasts about seven minutes, where he says, I'm no longer, I, I, I do not accept the authority of this court. Uh, this, is, uh, this is not a proper court. I came back to France from exile in Germany because he, fled France in 19 uh, after it was all over. He said, I came back to uh, render accounts to the French people, but to the French people, not to this court whose jurisdiction I don't recognise. I will not say another word. Now, and he sits down. <laughs> and of course, that's a bit of a problem because the whole point was to have you know, interrogate. So they probably knew he was going to do that. It was all planned with his lawyers. And he sits down. And for the rest of the three weeks, occasionally uh, you see him going very red in the face. You, he mutters under his breath. He clearly is sort of, sort of watching what's going on. But a lot of the time, people aren't sure, can he hear? Is he senile? Does he know what's going on? And there are pictures of the trial where he's cupping his ear with his hand, as if, you know, to, to like creating an ear trumpet, because he, can he hear? And the poor man, it's not easy, because the, wit, it, the, the, the way that the court was organised was Petain sits in his funny little armchair, and then a few meters, a few feet in front of him, the witnesses, the, the, the you know, the, the witnesses of the prosecution, witnesses of the defense come in and they testify, but they face the judge. So they face away from Peta. So actually they're talking to the judge and it's not surprising that anybody would have had difficulty hearing. But one of the mysteries is what is going on in this old man's head. And that's, and, and I suppose you asked me, do I know? And I don't, we don't, we can't. We have a, we know a little bit because some, we have the, the notes that were kept by the person we could call his jailer, the person, you know, the, the guard who was in charge, who kept a sort of diary. And it's quite clear, Petter, you know, more or less followed what was going on, not all the details. Um, and he felt indignant. Uh, he felt he was a patriot, uh, in fact, he didn't feel he was a traitor, and of course, that's the, the whole problem of the trial is 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 that there are two possible versions of patriotism that are in conflict. It's not a traitor against patriots. It's two. Yeah, I would say two versions of patriotism. And Petter didn't did think, I think, genuinely think that what he was doing was for the best of France, um, and so. 
that gives a real a poignancy to the whole thing. But there is the poignancy also. There's something sad, whatever you think, about seeing a very old man sitting, who had been a very distinguished old man, who had really done a lot for his country, sitting slightly sadly in an armchair while everybody is talking about him and um, he's he's just letting it swirl around him. And uh, just to give, there's one rather extraordinary moment when the wonderful man, socialist leader, Leon Blum, who was a left-wing politician uh, who'd been in charge um, before the war of a, of a left-wing government in the 30s. Uh, he was... Uh, the Germans arrested, or the Vichy regime arrested him in 1940 for many reasons. He was a socialist and he was a Jew, you know, everything that they didn't like. And it, and, and Bloom was actually deported to Germany. He was put in a, um, he wasn't put in Buchenwald, but he was put in a, a kind of house arrest just opposite the Buchenwald concentration camp. And he said afterwards that he could smell an odd smell he didn't quite know what the smell was. And we know what the smell was, but he didn't know what the smell was. He knew that something terrible was going on in that camp. Why was he not in the camp? Well, because the Germans thought they might use him as some kind of negotiating pawn or something like that. So Bloom sort of survived the war. He comes back to France when it's over and he appears at the trial. And there's a very extraordinary moment when the um, the judge or one of the, or I can't remember, one of the lawyers asks, you know, do you think Petain was a traitor? Because one of the interesting things is very few people can bring themselves to say that he is a traitor. And he is one of the, he, he, he says yes. But he then, the, 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 the lawyer pushes him a bit further and says, well, do you think that he wanted the war to be lost so that he could take power, so that he could overthrow democracy? And then Bloom turns around because he, as I say, you, when they've got their back to him when they're talking. He turns around, he looks at Peter, and he walks a few steps towards him. So their eyes literally lock. And he says, looking in his eyes, there is a Peter mystery, and I don't know the answer, which is a really extraordinarily um, pregnant moment, you know, in the, in the, in the, in the court. So, yes, uh, there is a... But, when you ask me what's going on in his head, no one really knows. And I, my answer there is my best uh, speculation as to what the answer is. Well, that gives listeners a real sense of the drama of this event, a, a titanic figure like Pétain being judged by his peers, all of which were much younger than him. Some of the French lawyers were known to be dramatic. Was it Bouchardin that uh, had a sense of drama in in his prosecution style? and uh, And then the importance of this trial in terms of later trials such as Nuremberg the trial for quiz uh, for quizling uh, by the Dutch who was much more a, a traitor but this did set a, something of a, a precedent for people who would be tried later such as Goering and in, in much more clear-cut circumstances um, what I I've read is that the you know the French still look at this trial as something uh, Robert Paxson described it as like the bitterest French family quarrel, and I and I wanted to get that across to our listeners. I, I totally I mean I, just one thing that muddies the water of the muddies the waters in the trial. We'll come back in a moment to the 
the way the trials viewed today, possibly, because I do end my book with quite a long part looking at what people think today in France. And I, I end with actually um, talking about the, the most extreme right French politician of the day, um, not Marine Le Pen, even more right wing than Marine Le Pen, a man called Eric Zemmour, who really tried to use the name of Pétain in the last um, presidential election. But just before that question of the afterlife, if you wanted the trial, and the way the family quarrel, as, as you say Paxton called it, which is still going on, uh, up to a point, um, is, is that what muddied the water in the trial was, of course, almost nobody was totally unsullied in some kind of way by what had happened between 1940 and 1944. A lot of the people who were there as prosecution witnesses against Petain weren't in a position really to throw stones or up to, I mean, they, they had all made mistakes or more than mistakes. And uh, the whole issue, for example, let's just, just take uh, one question that was much debated at the trial, at the trial, was it wrong to have signed an armistice with Germany? Forget collaboration for the moment, which comes later. But was it wrong? Was there an alternative to signing an armistice with Germany? A lot of the trial is about that. Half the trial is about that. And a lot of politicians who had been uh, the man who I mentioned a few minutes ago, who had put Pétain into his government. Remember, I said that Pétain is brought into government to sort of, you know, um, uh, restore morale and so on at this terrible moment. And Reno, who brought him in, uh, was the first prosecution witness, actually. So this is a poignant moment. The man who'd actually, you kind of say, made it possible for Pétain to take over because he brought him into his government and then he'd been replaced by him. And Reno had been against an armistice. He had said, we shouldn't sign an armistice with the Germans. But then what's the alternative? Because the French, there's no doubt, nobody denied that the French had been humiliatingly defeated in the battlefield. It was all over. No one denied that the French army had been beaten in 1940. But the argument of the people who were against an armistice was, yes, okay, the army's been beaten, the army has to surrender in the field, there's no alternative to that. But the government could go to North Africa, which is a French colony, which is still, you know, the Germans aren't there, they can't, it'd be very difficult for them to cross the Mediterranean, and set up there, and we can transport as many soldiers as possible to North Africa, and we can go on from abroad. That was the argument, that we could go, now, there's an argument against, an argument for, but then Renault was for going to North Africa. But then why didn't he, you could say? Why didn't? Why did he resign and let Petain take over rather than going to North Africa? And when he's asked that, he's, oh dear, you know, oh, I, I didn't feel I had the moral authority, Petain. But in a sense, he was, if he believed the armistice was wrong, guilty. And later in his, in his deposition, somebody says to him, so you think the armistice was treason? He said, no, I didn't say that the armistice was treason. So the armistice wasn't treason. No, I don't believe the armistice was treason. I believe the armistice was wrong as a decision, but I don't believe the armistice was treason. So there are these very complicated uh, questions. So it's not black and white. Uh, some things 
it might seem to us black and white. And one of the interesting things about the trial is that what might seem to us today to be the biggest crime of the Vichy regime. Let's say we would let's say we were doing the trial today. Let's say Petain was still alive. What would we try him for? Some of these questions that really um, got them very excited in 1940, really these questions about the, the armistice or not. No, the thing that we'd put him on on trial today for would be that 75,000 Jews were deported from France and never came back. And you could say, and what's fascinating about the trial is that it's not that the Jews were never mentioned. That would be nonsense. The Jews were mentioned. But it was not the big issue in the way that it would be today. Partly, it was not the big issue because people, I think, genuinely believed that that was the German crime and not Petain's crime. Um, and But uh, they, they would say, oh, the Germans are responsible. But now we would say, well, but the Vichy regime had a certain leeway, etc. Another reason why it wasn't uh, much it wasn't talked about as much as it would be today is because the truth is that the Holocaust didn't figure in the imagination in the way that it does today. Same at Nuremberg. I mean, it's not that this is not discussed at Nuremberg, but it's really only with the Eichmann trial in Jerusalem in 1961 that the fate of the Jews becomes, and I think quite rightly, the central issue of that moment, but it wasn't in 1945. So actually, what another interesting thing about looking about at the trial is it's not actually necessarily about the things we think it might have been about or that we think it should have been about because they didn't have the preoccupations we have today. And today, that Jewish issue is the one that everybody sees as cent- the central crime of Vichy, and I think I would agree with that. It's a complicated issue. And to go back to your what you said a moment ago about the, the, the family quarrel of the French, as you called it from Robert Paxton. Uh, today, when Zemmour, the extreme right candidate that I was telling you about, uh, stood in the last presidential election, uh, one of his lines, it, it, was a line, it wasn't a line he brought out for the election. It's something he'd been saying for years. And he's quite a, he's a sort of well-known pundit on right-wing French channel. A bit Fox News, there's a, a channel equivalent to Fox News in France called CNews, CNews, which isn't as big as Fox, but still, you know, doesn't do badly. And Zemmour used to have a program there and every night he would have a sort of he would, he would have a platform, really. And one of his lines was oh, that Marshal Pétain, um, uh, and Zemmour is Jewish, by the way, just to complicate matters, Marshal Pétain um, did his, uh, did, and the Vichy regime did their best to protect French Jews. Remember, they're, they're Jewish Jews in France who are refugees from other countries, and that without Vichy, more would have died. Now, I don't think most most historians would not agree with that, but I, I only raise it to show that it's still a talked about issue, even if not, uh, even if very few people would subscribe to that view. The the morality of this trial and the figures involved of it is amazingly complex. Not the least of which that there is a point about Zaymor there being Jewish and. Uh, from our standpoint, yes, it's the deportation of the Jews and uh, French people to go work in uh, more or less as uh, forced labor in Germany. And the treatment 
of the people while they were there, the sense of loss that the people left behind felt. You you go into that in the book, but the the prosecutor it, it goes to the figures in the trial. The prosecutor Andre Mornay also worked for the Vichy regime, so the person trying Patan had some murkiness to his morality. Did he sign an oath to Patan? Uh, I've heard he had, and he had not, which would. Again, yeah, no, you know, how do you stand well, and no, judge? That's, uh, I, I was I raised a moment ago the the, the, the murkiness of the past of some of the uh, witnesses, but of course the murkiness of the past of the um, lawyers and the judges is another issue, and the public prosecutor that the man you just mentioned who was called Andre Mornay. Now let's just on, on this question every every single magistrate judge in France under the Vichy regime had to sign an oath of personal allegiance to Marshal Pétain. If they didn't, they were they, they, they were basically removed from their office, sacked. Uh, only one judge refused to take the oath, that oath, and he was immediately sacked. All the others did. Now, the position of the resistance was that was not necessarily um, reprehensible because the line of the resistance was that if you'd done, if everybody had refused, the regime would have just put in complete stooges who could do everything. So, so there might be a case for saying, right, I, in my head, I don't support Marshal Petain, but I'm going to say it because I might be able to do more good in power as a judge than some worse person. So that's not an absurd argument. And certainly the resistance and the goal didn't take the view that signing, sorry, that taking the oath was in itself wrong. What they said, because there was a big purge of the judiciary after the war, what they said was it all depends what those judges did with the power they had. So there was a lot of investigation. Now, one problem in 1945 was it was almost impossible to find any uh, uh, impossible to find any judges who hadn't signed the oath, but actually the man you mentioned, Mornay, the public prosecutor, hadn't why hadn't he? Only because he had um, former. He it, just by an accident of of, his, of um, age, really. He'd taken his retirement in 1940. Just he'd reached the age of retirement. So Mornay is able to say, "I never took the oath to Peter," which is true. Which is one reason, certainly, why he was a useful person to have. But as you rightly say, that's not the whole story, and. There's an extraordinary moment. Uh, so Mornay, Mornay was not an active judge during the occupation. So in that sense, his hands were clean, you know, because he wasn't simply by dint of just having retired. There's no other reason for, the, for that. And indeed, he actually managed to sort of create for himself a whole reputation as someone who'd been a sort of secret resistor and so on. But what there was, but soon after the armistice was signed, Mornay offered his services to a new court that had been set up by the Vichy regime to put on trial the old politicians. It was a, a real show trial. It was a, a, the man I mentioned, the Jewish politician, Leon Blum, was their main, uh, the, 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 the main victim of that trial. So Mornay actually offered, he actually volunteered. Luckily for him, <laughs> uh, for various reasons, the offer wasn't taken up, so he didn't. So his hands remained clean on that one. But he did something else where his hands weren't clean. One of the first things that the Vichy regime did, the new regime of Pétain, 
almost in July, I mean, a few weeks after it was set up, was to set up a commission, a special commission, to look at the cases of all people who'd been naturalised French in the, in the interwar years. Now, what did that mean? Um, and uh, in the interwar years, uh, France had taken a lot of refugees from, particularly from Nazi Germany, but from Eastern Europe. So there were a lot of refugees in France. It had had quite a, a, a tolerant asylum policy at that period, much more actually than most countries. And a lot of these people had got citizenship when there was quite generous rules in the, in the 20s. And so this commission set up to investigate the case. Are these people deserving? And basically what it was was a way of stripping recently naturalized Jews of their Frenchness, which made them, of course, very vulnerable to, to it meant they'd lost any kind of protection as French citizens. So that commission was set up. It was presided by a man called uh, Roussel, who nobody remembers the name, it's not important. And there were three sort of sub-commissions that he had to help him, because it was a very complex, there were thousands of cases to study. And one of the sub-committees was chaired by Monet. So Mornay was the man who was prosecuting Pétain was on a committee in the occupation to basically help the process of denaturalizing Jews. So his hands were far from clean. And there was an extraordinary, again, one of these extraordinary dramatic moments in the trial when the uh, Pétain's leading defence lawyer, who was a very brilliant young man, uh, he, he was really he was he was in some ways one of the stars of the uh, one of the stars of the trial because it was a trial of most the judges were old the the prosecuting witness uh, sorry the prosecutor was old Mornay was old I mean they were all in their seventies uh, the other two defence judges were old but there was this one really charismatic young in his thirties lawyer who becomes. Uh, passionate about Pétain for the rest of his life. And um, he had the clever idea of getting the man who was the head of that um, committee, the commission to denaturalise Jews, to testify in Pétain's favour. You say, well, how the hell could this man be brought in to testify as a defence witness? Well, the reason was, he basically said, uh, we, we were on this committee, yeah, we, were, uh, we did have to do that, but what we were doing was if we hadn't been trying to do this in a serious kind of way, the Germans would have just, you know, denaturalized everybody. So we were trying to... So that was the way... But is the, the, the lawyer, Isoni, the reason he brought Roussel in was he knew that Roussel knew and that everybody in the court knew and that Mornay knew that he had been on the same committee. So you have these two men facing each other. And poor Mornay, while it's going on, is just sort of shuffling his papers, not looking down, uncharacteristically not saying anything, just desperately hoping that this man will leave court as quickly as possible. So there are, um, there, there is a, a lot of, there, there, there's a lot of history there playing out in the court. And after the war, uh, before he died in the early 50s, Mornay wrote a book about the occupation, about a kind of journal, which was pretty invented, actually, of his own journal. of the, And it was called Four Years to Erase from Our History. And if anybody would have liked to erase it, it would have been Mornay, because he was pretty, you know, he, he, he his record was not good. And that's undoubtedly, and, and you can imagine that the defence used that you know, as as they should. I mean, if you're defending, they had a, you know, it was it was an argument, and so there's always that other story going on, which is sort of 
undercurrent and a, a sort of undercurrent of another story. What did you do in the war? Right, you're pointing a finger now, but what did you do? And that particular moment I've just described is the moment when it becomes amazingly explicit. The connections with this case uh, even reach to today because I think it's fairly well known that Mitterrand uh, had something to do with the Vichy regime. You meant the charismatic young laureate you mentioned. Was that Jacques Izorni, if I'm saying Yes, exactly. Right? That's yep. him, yes. Yep. So it, it, it just takes on such morally complex areas. Um, it seemed like, I think you described it earlier as a bit of a political theater or a, a national cleansing of collective cowardice or collective treason, as Simone Veil Wheel refers to it. And it, did, when you were looking up the figures in this trial, what did you find regarding the intentions of those involved? Did, was Jacques Izorni looking to promote himself as, you know, to get himself into the national stage as a lawyer? Was Bouchardon looking to, uh, you know, dramatize the whole thing so he could write more books? Did anyone have ulterior motives and, and then, you know, sort of placing Patan as the, the failed or um, jaded traitor type, but a man of integrity, or was this actually, you know, an actual legal trial? It it seems to me something like the trial uh, viewers might be familiar with uh, by watching TV and that it's, it's, it's as much drama as it is a legal proceeding. No, I I would say, you know, Again, it, it was interesting that this this comparison made in the paper this morning between the Trump trials to, to come and which I was, and and the and and this trial, um, and I think it's because a journalist had recently read my book, which is why it came into his mind. But um, it's all trials are. I mean, trials. There's lot. There's always a lot going on. There are lots of things going on. And you just to answer your, let's say. The, the man I mentioned at the very beginning, um, Paul Renault, this remember the the man who'd been prime minister in 1940, who'd who'd uh, wanted genuinely, I think, wanted an armistice, and made brought Pétain into the government nonetheless, and, and resigned, and Pétain takes over. Why is Renault there? Well, he's there because he's been called as a witness, but he's there to make his case for himself. He's there to say, look, France was defeated in 1940, but I'm not to blame. So every there's a lot of whitewashing or a lot of people trying to reset their reputations. Um, these people, these old politicians, old in the sense they're not necessarily old in years, but pre-1940 politicians, uh, who a lot of people thought were guilty of having let the country down. So people didn't like Vichy, but they didn't like the politicians either. And de Gaulle didn't particularly. I mean, de Gaulle's view was, yes, France was betrayed by Vichy, but he was also betrayed by the politicians who made Vichy possible. So these old politicians, I call them the the ghosts of the Republic in in my book. Um, These ghosts have sort of come back. And what they want to say is, okay, uh, you know, you, you may not... A lot has happened since 1940, but we did our best and we were betrayed by Petain and so on. So they are, as it were, um, arguing um, uh, for their rehabilitation in the eyes of public opinion because they want to have new careers. They want to go back. They want to they, they want to get back into politics. So they have an agenda. Um, the uh, the uh, uh, Petain's two defense counts, there were three. He had three lawyers. One of them isn't such a... a, a, a 
important figure, but his main defence lawyer, because the young man we've talked about, Jackie Zorni, we'll come back to in a second, his main defence lawyer was an, uh, a quite venerable, old, much older um, um, lawyer, civil lawyer, rather than a um, criminal lawyer by, by, by training. Uh, he was the main one. And I think he really, he saw a chance. Well, what he actually wanted was to make his reputation so that he could get elected to the Académie Française. The Académie Française is the, the you know, it's, it's, it's a, an amazingly important institution of 40 eminent writers in France. It's like being a god. And they always have a few people who aren't necessarily writers, a, a, a celebrity lawyer, a celebrity journalist, you know, they do have figures like that as well. And so Payal, this man thought, well, if I can defend Pétain, um, and even if obviously I'm not going to win, he, he knew he was going to win, but if I can make a good case, that, that'll clinch my Académie Française candidature. Um, and that affected the way he wanted to fight the case, because he wanted to fight the case essentially by saying, um, well, basically, essentially by saying, uh, Petain was see uh, there were it was people around Petain. He didn't use the word senile, but Petain was led astray. He was a great hero, doing his best, a patriot, led astray by evil people around him, particularly the man everybody liked to hate, uh, who looked like a villain. Petain looked like a hero if he was a villain, but the man everybody loved to hate was his prime minister Pierre Laval, who had a sort of greasy-looking man with yellow teeth and you know stained clothes. So he's he's a is a man we can all hate. And so Payon's way of doing it was to push the blame onto others. Why did he do that? Because that was the most sort of consensual thing to do, because that way he could sort of um, uh, make a case. He, some of nostalgic Petanists would find that was an acceptable line. And then some people who weren't Petanists but sort of felt sorry for the old man might. So it was a consensual line, the most consensual you could do anyway. Izoni was having none of that. Izoni, a young man who wants to make his reputation. I'm not saying he wasn't sincere, but he's a brilliant man. He's a brilliant young lawyer. He's frustrated by the timidity of Payon's defence. He can't stand Payon. The two men hate each other. That's another little drama in the case. And <laughs> yeah. um, Izoni says, right, I'm no, I'm not. We're not going for senility. We're not going for evil counselors. We're not going for the bad. We're going to say that everything Petain did is justifiable. I am going to defend Vichy. I'm going to put the case for Vichy, which is a brave thing to do. And there, and there is, you can always, you know, a lawyer can always make a case for anything. Um, and so he did his best to make a case for, and that was a, and, and actually Petain. He very much won the confidence of Petain for doing that. Petain didn't like somebody whose line of defence was your senile or incapable of taking good decisions. So Petain and Izoni develop a really close bond, this young, really you know, passionate young lawyer um, and this old man who could see that this... But, um, but, and, and Izoni was genuine about it. Izoni really became sort of almost transfixed by the case, but there's an element of this was going to make him a celebrity. And it did make him a celebrity. He A celebrity, perhaps not quite the word, but he became one of the most famous lawyers in France. He became a huge figure. Later, he tried to get into the Académie Française in the 60s, but failed for other reasons. Um, and he, he became um, um, uh, really a, a national figure. He entered politics and was very much on the extreme right. And he moved further and further to the right. So when the French... 
the, the Algerian war happened in the 1960s, and there were attempts to assassinate de Gaulle, who wanted to um, a decolonization of Algeria. Izzoni was the man who defended the um, uh, defended the, the um, uh, people who tried to assassinate de Gaulle because they wanted to hold on to Algerie Francaise. So, yeah, to answer your question is that lots of things are always going on in this trial. Um, and just, again, because that makes me think, takes us sort of back to the present and something that you you raised about the, the sort of the, the, the way in which the thing rumbles on up to an extent. Uh, I, I end my book and, and I ended and ended my research on the book, actually, by a little account of my own visit to the island where Petain is buried. And he, he was put in. So we haven't talked about what the, the result of the trial is. He was sentenced to death, but the goal commuted it to life imprisonment. Uh, there was no way anyone really wanted uh, a 90 year old man to be shot. I mean, that, that wasn't, it was a symbolic, he had to be sentenced to death to make a point, but there was no way it would have been grotesque and would have been divisive actually to do it. So he's, he's sentenced to life. So the goal commutes the sentence to life imprisonment. And he's sent to this little island off the West coast of France called the Ile Dieu. And basically what the government hoped was and he's put in a, a fortress there, and he you know, uh, and they did everyone would forget about him. The island's quite inaccessible, particularly then it was very inaccessible, and that he'd quickly die. Well, he did die, but he didn't die as quickly as they hoped. So he lived on to 1951 and died what well, 96, like five, I can't remember years old. Where, by which time he really was senile. At the very end, he, his mind had gone. And Isorni, the the man, the defence lawyer, used to take the boat over from time to time and visit the marshal in prison. And it was very noble of Izoni because he suffered terribly from seasickness. And that's a terribly agitated bit of water. I've been to it. And I can tell you, if you're on a bad day, um, and if you're susceptible to seasickness, it's not a, it's not a place you want to go. And then Petan died. And the government certainly didn't want any kind of, they just wanted to hush the whole thing up. So there was no, obviously there wasn't going to be a state funeral. He was a, a traitor. But so he was quietly buried in the cemetery on this island. The government hopes he'll be forgotten. And he is sort of forgotten, but he becomes the centre of a kind of cult for the extreme right. And every year on the anniversary of his death in July, uh, 23rd of July, 1951. Every year, um, the the faithful would gather in a kind of pilgrimage, really. And the numbers weren't huge because the island is inaccessible, and there was only one ferry a day, and you you know it wasn't easy to get there. But nonetheless, at the peak, you know, probably a few thousand people would assemble by the by his tomb, and and there would be speeches about how it's horribly been treated. And one of their lines was, "His body should be um, transferred back to the mainland." To where? Verdun. That we takes us back to how we began. The battlefield, Verdun, there's a huge um, uh, cemetery at Verdun for, uh, and the, the view of the, these people was that Petain was a hero of Verdun and he should lie with the soldiers of Verdun and so on. The government was never going to have that. He was remaining Ile Dieu. So, uh, and, and just as a parenthesis, a very funny moment of, in 1973, which I describe in the book, when a group of right-wing activists dig up the grave, dig up the coffin, and take it secretly back over to the mainland to use it as a bargaining chip with the government to say, on you know, we're not going to give you the body back unless, unless you allow it to 
be transferred to Verdun, but they were discovered. The, the coffee was discovered in a garage outside Paris and uh, it was taken back and so on. So anyway, I thought I'd end the book by going, oh, I did my, my research and the book by going to the island on the anniversary of Petain's death. Now, COVID interrupted my first plan. So I ended up actually going in nineteen in 2021. I couldn't, I planned to go in, in twenty. 19, COVID, etc. In 2020, COVID problems. So I went in 2021, which is a good date because it's actually the anniversary. It was actually 70th, 70th anniversary. It's, it's the 70th anniversary. So it's got a zero in it. And I was there for the week. And I thought, I'm just going to see what happens. You know, who's there? Well, the truth is, um, very few people now, extreme, a few extreme right people do go and so on. But uh, there were um, on the day, uh, an old couple appeared, and he's ju- he's his grave is is sort of at the edge of this normal cemetery, um, and it just says on his grave, it just says Philippe Petta. It doesn't say Marshall. It doesn't say anything, and his dates. That's all it is. It's very simple, and so this old couple, um, I think eighty, a man and woman, eighty years old, arrived. Uh, he had quite a lot of decorations on. He um, and so he unfurled. A flag and bowed to the tomb and meanwhile I talked to his wife and she said well why you know why, why are you here and I said well I'm a historian I'm just interested in in this and she said well, what are you historian of and I said I'm historian of well I said I recently written a book about General de Gaulle and she said oh, the enemy I said well um, yeah, 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 why do you say the enemy she said well he put my husband in prison and so I said, why did he put you? But he said, and it turned out that the man, the husband, the man who was bowing to the, had been one of the, he was the last survivor, in fact, of that group of people who tried to assassinate de Gaulle in 1962 during the Algerian war. And so he had been, I think, quite reasonably in the circumstances, been put in prison, but he was out of prison. He then became a, a founder of the National Front, uh, the Front National, which is the extreme party whose leader may become next president of France. So it's, you know, it's 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 not nothing. And so my point is that Pétain became a sort of, um, yeah, a, a, a sort of legend, of, a, a site of pilgrimage, if you want, for the extreme right. Because Pétain had nothing to do with the Algerian war. Obviously, that, that happens all after his, after his death. But he becomes almost like the, the condensation of all the traditions of the extreme right. and But the end result, and I'll give you another example of that around that tomb. There's a man, um, a youngish man, who arrived on that same day, and he was wearing a, a T-shirt. Um, a, um, and the T-shirt had written in English on it, actually. It had um, um, cool, it, it written in English was cool, cool to be white. And then he took off his T-shirt and he put on another T-shirt, which said, La France aux Français, France for the French. Then he bowed or saluted the tomb, and then he put on the other T-shirt and went away. So you get the you get the idea. But we're talking about, I have to say, there were tiny numbers, and uh, when, when you know it was it was, uh, I and so I I very um, uh, boldly ended my book with the sentence. Um, I don't want to spoil for your readers, but I don't think it matters to give you the last sentence. Uh, I ended with the sentence, uh, the Petain case is now closed. And a number of people said to me uh, in interviews or um, reviewers said, oh, you know, is it really closed? You know, and 
it is and it isn't. It goes on being argued by what I meant by its close was really it's not driving French politics in. Look, there are people who still believe like that man with his T-shirt or that old man who had been involved. But I don't think, uh, and, and, I'll, and the reason why I will say that is the man who tried to win, beat President Macron at the last election, Zemmour, who I've already mentioned, I remember I said he, he took up the Petar case. He got, in the end, what, 6% of the vote, which is not nothing, actually, but it's, it, you know, it, it's very marginal. Marine Le Pen, however, the head of the Front National, or what's now called the Rassemblement National, got 30% and she got to the second round. Now, her strategy is to distance herself entirely from that past history. Her father, who founded the party, was a Petternist, and he was totally proud of Petter. And he famously, her father famously called the Holocaust a detail of history, which calls her, uh, you know, he said, oh, who cares about, you know, it's a detail, the Holocaust. So he was anti-Semitic, Petternist, unreconstructive. She has decided to detoxify, in her words, her party. So we don't have anything to do with that. But I, but I think she's every bit as right wing, and she wants to do to um, Muslim immigrants in France what Vichy wanted to do to Jews, basically. I'm not actually kill them, but certainly get rid of them, etc. Um, so, but her strategy is the way to do that is to distance yourself from that past. Zemmour's is we must embrace that past. And I think the fact that Zemmour really didn't do very well, and she does well, shows, I think, that Vichy's not a vote winner any longer. And the extreme right, so when people thought I was saying when I said the Pétain case is over, the extreme right is not a danger in France, I didn't mean that at all. I think the extreme right is a danger in France, but I don't think it's through Pétainism, it's through pretending not to be Pétainist, if you want, that they are a danger. I can't think of a better place to end the interview here than that, um, uh, Professor Jackson. I, I think you nicely summed up what Pétainism and the figure of Pétain means to French people today with the uh, National Front and, and, and its uh, reincarnation now. Um, I'd like to thank you for your time, and uh, we'll, uh, we'll end it there. Thank you very much.